More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org, or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W E S T H E I M E R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is so you have the opportunity in the privacy of your priesthood to silently, in in forming words in your mind alone, admitting or acknowledging your sins to God the Father. At the instant we acknowledge our sins, we're told He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll pray. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom to gather together to study your word, to have its teaching freely communicated without hindrance or control from any outside forces. Father, we continue to pray for this nation, that it may continue to be a bulwark of freedom, and that you would continue to guide and direct our civilian leadership as well as military leadership, and that you would guide and direct those who are involved with this nation's security that they might have the wisdom, skill, and insight to protect us. Father, we pray that you would continue to foil the plots of those who would seek to destroy us. Father, we continue to pray for us as a congregation that you would supply our needs, that as we continue to look for a building, that you would provide for us and that you would provide all of the logistical needs that we have in relation to that building. And Father, we also remember Ulan and Dinara and their daughter Lana, and we pray that you would uh, protect them, continue to protect them, watch over them, guide and direct those who are seeking to find a way to bring them to the United States, to take them out of harm's way, and to prevent them from being returned to Kyrgyzstan. Father, we 
pray that tonight as we study your word, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the things that apply to us and that we would have the courage to apply the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Grace. Grace is the hallmark doctrine of biblical Christianity. You don't find any other religious systems or secular philosophies talking about the concept of grace. Grace is the magnificent truth that underlies everything in the Bible. It's been said that grace is the sum total of the entire plan of God towards mankind, towards fallen mankind. But fallen man in his attempt to define reality on his own terms, as fallen man just seeks to assert his own will and to to press his own will on God's creation and to define life on creaturely terms rather than on the Creator's terms, manages to consistently pervert and misshape the doctrine of grace. On one extreme, what we have is that grace is simply redefined into something that is earned, something that's merited, something that is worked for, something requiring man to perform up to a certain level, and then we're worthy of grace. On the other extreme, you have the equal but opposite perversion of grace, where grace is frequently cheapened and diluted by trivializing and minimizing sin and its destructiveness on all aspects of God's creation and especially on the individual human being. And along with that trivializing and minimizing of sin, there is a equal trivializing and minimizing of the cost of dealing with sin. And that goes by the name of licentiousness. See, what so often happens when grace is taught is that people go to the opposite extreme and they say, well, if Christ paid for all my sins, salvation's free, then I'm free to sin because my sins are paid for. And see, in that process, what we've done is we have diminished our whole concept of what sin is and what its consequences are, but we've also diminished the value of what Christ did. When we talk about salvation being free, we need to remember that all that is being said is salvation is free to us. Salvation wasn't free to God. Salvation cost God the Father, God the Son. There was a price that had to be paid for our sins and on the cross. These two opposing poles of licentiousness on the one hand and legalism on the other are actually the opposing trends of our sin nature. So here we have a diagram of the sin nature, and at the core of the sin nature we have lust patterns, and these lust patterns move us in numerous directions. Sometimes it moves us towards legalism, sometimes towards licentiousness. At different stages of your Christian life, you're going to find that you move in different directions. At one stage, you may have been fairly licentious. In another stage, you may realize you've become somewhat arrogant and legalistic. So we have these various lust patterns, approbation lust and power lust and sex lust and money lust and materialism lust and all kinds of different lusts. 
And these move us in these two different directions. And as we manifest our sin, we, our sin nature, our, we have personal sins in the area of weakness, which are sins of the tongue, overt sins, and mental attitude sins. But our sin nature also produces human good. Human good is simply our attempt to try to impress God with our morality. So as we emphasize one or the other, we go in different directions. So when your emphasis is in that area of human good, you're going to trend towards asceticism and legalism. When you are emphasizing your personal sins, then we move in the direction of licentiousness and lasciviousness and antinomianism. All of those are roughly synonyms. But that drives us, and these operate in such subtle ways. And as arrogance dominates the soul, and remember arrogance is at the core of all sin nature activity, that when we're operating on arrogance, and none of us are, are free or immune to arrogance, we become blind to our own failures, our own sins, our own trends, and we find ways to justify those. Remember in when we talk about the uh, various arrogant skills, we begin with talking about our self-absorption, and we move from self-absorption to self-indulgence, and then we move from self-indulgence to self-justification. And we get so adept at self-justification and rationalization for sin that by the time we're probably three or four years of age, we're no longer aware of the ways we are justifying and rationalizing our own sin nature. And it isn't until the Holy Spirit, along with the Word of God, comes along after you become a believer that He starts dealing with you in terms of these areas of arrogance. But the trend for most of us is that we want to justify it. It's not really sinful. And because these habit patterns of sin for dealing with the pressures of life become second nature to us, we find ways to rationalize and justify those sin habits, those sin patterns, in ways so that we don't really have to deal with the sin. Because actually it's more comfortable just to go the path of least resistance and sin, and then, of course, we can confess it and we're cleansed and back in fellowship, right? Then I don't have to go through that horrible process of trying to deal with the sin patterns in my life. So I can just say, well, Lord, uh, I did this, I admit it, and then we're forgiven and we move on, but we forget that there are always consequences. So as we look at and continue to look at this third short epistle in Revelation chapter 2, we realize that at the core of the problem in Pergamum is the problem of licentiousness. And licentiousness has created an arrogance, an arrogant blindness that has led them into a position where they don't even realize what they are doing and that what they are doing is wrong. But in the process, they have compromised with sin and with human viewpoint so that it is affecting the testimony, the evidentiary testimony of the church in the angelic conflict. Now, we started to look at this a couple of weeks ago in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. 
to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right. And this angel we've seen is a is like an officer of the court. An officer of the court who is going to receive a record of this evaluation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the responsibility of this angel as a court officer to record how the justice of God operates in terms of the spiritual life of this congregation with reference to these evaluative statements. So the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, says who, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the rompia sword that is a sword of judgment, and we have studied that. And then verse 13, we read the positive commendation. The positive commendation, I know your works. That is, I know your production. I know the production that goes on inside this congregation, both positive and negative. We saw the verb there is oida that indicates this complete intimate knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has of every believer and every congregation. I know your works. I know your application, your production, and where you dwell. And the focus of verse 13 we saw was on the positive fact that this congregation is in the midst of a crucible of persecution. They are under persecution because they live in an environment that is dominated by pagan systems of worship, pagan systems of idolatry, and that's key to interpreting what happens in verse 14. We looked at various pictures and slides and saw all the temples you remember to Dionysius and Athena and Zeus Soter and to uh, Asclepius. These were the more dominant deities, but there were various temples to all the Greek deities. And if you looked up on the Acropolis outside of the city, you would see it just, just lined with all of these religious symbols. And so paganism and idolatry, as well as the fertility cult, the phallic cult, were dominant in Pergamum at this time. But especially... And most seriously was the worship of Caesar. The deification of Caesar had been in progress for over a hundred years since the deification or so-called deification of Augustus. And Pergamum was the first city to build a temple for the worship of Augustus. So it was in that context that this congregation is undergoing persecution because they were refusing to bow the knee and to subordinate themselves to this decree to worship Caesar. And it was worse in Pergamum than it was anywhere else because they had to confront this on a daily or weekly basis, whereas in many other areas of the Roman Empire it was just something that happened maybe once a year. Now as we talk about persecution, especially in light of what's been going on with uh, with Ulan, it brings a certain reality to this whole discussion of how do we handle living in a hostile environment. And as I pointed out during the last couple of weeks, it begins with a priority system. You have to make some decisions within your own soul as to what is most important in your life. And then you have to live that out on a day-to-day basis, moment-by-moment basis, and that's not always easy. 
The younger you are when you make this decision, the easier it is to establish those habit patterns. But it's always difficult at the beginning because it just seems and that's the nature of the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare that as soon as we decide that we want to try to do something in terms of our own spiritual growth and make sure that what we're going to do is the, in terms of Bible study, Bible class, studying the Word is the priority, then all kinds of things are going to come up that interfere with that decision and be, threaten to become distractions. So we have the praise in verse 13, because in the midst of this persecution, they held fast to the proper Christology that Jesus Christ was Lord, not Caesar. And they did not deny my faith, that is, the doctrine related to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, even in the days in which Antipas was martyred. But then in verse 14, we have the condemnation. The condemnation. But I have a few things Against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those, in verse 15, who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Verse 16 begins the challenge, and we won't get into that this evening. We'll spend all of our time understanding this condemnation. And at the core of this condemnation are two different theological ideas that have become prevalent in uh, Pergamum. And the, I call these theological ideas because at the core of all behavior, you're holding on to some theological principle. It may be wrong, it may be an erroneous principle, it may be an idolatrous principle, but at the core of everything in life, there has something to do with theology. What is theology? Theology is the study of God. So at the very core of everything is a view of ultimate reality, because that's where God is. So no matter what you're doing in life, no matter what you're... Uh, decisions are, if they involve anything that is ethical, it in includes, maybe in a way that you're not aware of, but it always includes some view of ultimate reality. Whether there are absolutes or not, whether there's accountability or not, whether there's a future judgment or not, that is always implicit in every single uh, moral or ethical Decision. Now, when you get to the point where you think that, well, it really doesn't matter, that either grace has covered everything that I, I do, so it doesn't matter whether I sin or not, because after all, Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin, or whether you adopt uh, just a view that there is no ultimate judgment, there is no ultimate accountability, that all comes under the guise of licentiousness. Antinomianism, that there are no real absolutes that I need to hold myself accountable to. And this, under, this idea is what underlies both of these systems, both the thinking and the teaching of Balaam, which occurs in Numbers 22 to 25, which we'll get into a little later, 
and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans, as I pointed out, back when we were uh, looking at the first epistle, which was the one to the uh, Ephesians in uh, Revelation 2.1. Jesus said, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. When we studied that, I pointed out that there were various views on who these Nicolaitans were. And the bottom line is that we don't really know But the evidence that we have from verse 14 with reference to eating things sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality is that at the very least they held to a licentious or antinomian view of the Christian life. And so both the the doctrines of the Nicolaitans and the uh, the doctrine of Balaam are linked together in these two verses. At their core, they both are buying into licentiousness. Now, before we get any further, let's go a little more into a study of grace versus licentiousness. What is grace? What does grace mean? You'll get all kinds of ideas. Every religious system, especially every denomination of Christianity, talks about the value of grace. You can talk to a Roman Catholic, and they'll tell you that they believe in grace. However, if you're going to receive the grace of God, it's mediated through the sacraments. And as you participate in the sacraments, you receive grace. In fact, that Jesus merited the grace of God at the cross, and so all of God's grace is put in a treasury of merit that we tap into as we participate in these sacraments. Well, see, what they've done is through a lot of verbiage, redefine grace in terms of works. You have to do something. You have to be worthy of salvation. You see, in many approaches to the Christian life, what Jesus Christ did on the cross wasn't to provide you with salvation as a 100% substitute for you. What he did on the cross simply makes you savable. Makes you savable. It's potential. You're savable if you do the right things, if you participate in the right rituals, if you clean up your life, if there are certain sins that are no longer evident in your life, then that salvation has been activated. But what grace means is the unearned or unmerited favor or blessing of God toward fallen creatures who deserve his most severe condemnation. Let me say that again. Grace is the unearned or unmerited favor or blessing of God toward fallen creatures who deserve his most severe condemnation. In other words, what grace means is you don't get what you deserve, you get something better. See, we all deserve eternal condemnation. Because we are born sinners, we have the imputation of Adam's original sin, and we commit personal sin, we are under condemnation. And if we got what we deserved, if God gave us what we had earned, it would be eternal condemnation. Romans 6.21 says that the wages of sin is death. Now, the context there is not talking about necessarily eternal condemnation. It's in the context of talking about spiritual life. But the principle is still true that you earn something by sin, and that's condemnation. So what we've earned is condemnation. If you want to work for something, we've done it. 
We don't have to, we can't counter it. There's nothing you can do that can counter even the smallest sin. God has to do that. So all of God's grace is based on the fact that Jesus Christ paid the price for sin, or that God the Father paid the price for sin by sending His Son to die on the cross for us. Grace, therefore, isn't something that is free. It is something that costs God the Father. It cost Him His Son. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Now, some people may say, how could this cost God anything? How can God, who is totally self-sufficient, lose anything? Perceptive question. How can God the Father lose anything? Well, He can't. He can't lose anything of His nature. But something dramatic and unusual and unexplainable takes place during that judicial transaction on the cross. Between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when darkness covers the face of the earth, God the Father imputes to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to whom He has been eternally united. He imputes to the second person of the Trinity all the sins of human history so that the second person of the Trinity becomes judicially guilty of those sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And it is so painful to God the Son in this judicial separation that He screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the you there is a singular you. It's not a plural. So He's not talking to the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's talking solely to God the Father. Why have you singular forsaken me. Now, we don't have anything in the Scripture that talks about what's happening on the side of God the Father at that moment. But God the Son is experiencing all of the pain and misery that a holy God would, would experience in bearing the sin of mankind. So what's going on on the other side of the equation? God the Father is also experiencing that same judicial separation because He is imputing the sin to the Son. And during those three hours, it is costing God the Father so that Jesus Christ is indeed a sacrifice. One of the core ideas of a sacrifice is you're giving up something that is valuable to yourself. And God the Father did that when He sent the second person of the Trinity, to become a human being in the act of the Incarnation. So what we see is that grace isn't free. Grace is just free to us. But it cost God the Father something. There was a transaction that occurred in the Incarnation and Hypostatic Union that while it doesn't change deity at its very ontological core, and by that I mean in terms of his essence, so it doesn't violate immutability, what happens in the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity adds to himself true humanity. And there is this unity of the second person of the Trinity with humanity that goes on forever and ever and ever, and that will never change. Something happens in the throne room of God 
after that, as we've seen in our study of the ascension and session, is that there is now the addition of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ that is present in the councils of the Trinity. Now, that's phenomenal to think about that. This is, this is something that, that, that shook heaven in some sense. It cost God something. So grace is such a powerful concept when we understand what it cost God and that sin was such an egregious breach of the entire creation that the only possible solution was for Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to enter into human history and go through this unexpressible pain and misery of this judicial punishment. We can't minimize the consequences of sin. When we realize that it was just that innocuous act of Adam eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God that brought all this pain, misery, and suffering into human history, we realize how, how, how complex the consequences of sin are. So often we tell lies to ourselves, well, it really doesn't matter, so what if I, if I got mad or I lost my temper or I was angry or I uh, told a little white lie or I wasn't as responsible as I should have been. And we try to justify, after all, Jesus died for that sin and I'm forgiven. And that's true. So that, that when we confess our sin, there's a restoration of fellowship. But restoration of fellowship doesn't mean an that the consequences are removed. Sometimes they are. And many times I think that, that God in His grace uh, ameliorates the consequences for our sins so that He constantly deals with us in, sin, in, in, in grace. But the issue is, on our side, we diminish the significance of sin because we don't think enough about it. So while grace means that salvation is free to us, it emphasizes this payment of a price. And that's part of the whole concept of redemption. The whole concept of redemption means to pay a price. The Greek words agorazo and ex-agorazo are those words that mean to purchase or to buy out of the marketplace something. The agora, the root of that word agorazo, the agora was the marketplace. It was the, that's the Walmart of the ancient Greek world. You'd go down to the marketplace and you got everything down there from groceries to furniture to rugs to slaves. Everything was for sale down in the Agora. And so you would go down there and you would purchase something. And we are purchased out of the slave market of sin. That's a key concept in understanding salvation is that a price was paid. A price was paid that freed us from the slave market of sin. So that the picture in the New Testament is one of this price, this payment of a price that took place on the cross. Now what happens in licentiousness is you come along and say, well, either that really doesn't matter, or great, that was accomplished, now I can do whatever I want to do. And what happens when we adopt that attitude is it just diminishes and trivializes grace. And that's what's happening here. It affects our role, our future role in the uh, 
in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're going through that training time now. And that's why there's such a significant statement made at the end of this particular epistle or short, short church evaluation report related to being an overcomer. Okay, let's look at the condemnation. The first statement is that there are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, the Lord says, I have a few things against you. And that's not the best uh, translation. And you have a few things against you, maybe several. Actually, it's only two. It's the Greek word holagos, which means a small number. This isn't a big number, of large number of problems. There are other Others of these seven letters that are written to churches, such as Laodicea, where nothing positive is said. So there are actually two things against them. Because there, because you have there, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now the word here that is translated hold is the Greek verb krateo. Here it's a participle. Those who continue holding, it's a present active participle, so this is a, an ongoing action. You consistently adhere to the teaching or the doctrine of Balaam. Now, this is in contrast to the use of the verb in verse 13. There in con- commendation, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you hold fast to my name. But in contrast to this, using the same verb, krateo, there are those in the congregation who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, it's not only that there are those in the congregation who hold on to the doctrine of Balaam, but nobody else in the congregation seems to think this is a problem. Well, you know, it's between them and the Lord. And I'm not saying that uh, you need to get involved in other people's business and straighten out their spiritual life. That's not the point here. The point is that the congregation has taken a lax attitude towards sin. They have, as a whole, adopted a licentious attitude so that they've created an environment in the congregation where people think that it's okay to violate these principles of the Word of God because, after all, we're going to be forgiven. And as a result of that... The congregation is being affected by this minimization of sin. So we read, I have a few things against you. First of all, you hold on to the teaching of Balaam. That's the verb there, didasco, uh, the, the doctrine of Balaam who taught. Didasco, it's an aorist active indicative. It's a culminative aorist. He taught in the past or instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now, what exactly happened? This is one of those great passages where you have to dig around the Old Testament to figure out what the point is. And this is one of those bizarre stories in the Old Testament where you have a talking donkey. Of course, I was tempted to use the old King James, a talking ass. But see, some of you would misinterpret that phrase. This is a talking donkey. God uses this donkey to uh, challenge and confront Balaam with his arrogance. 
But that's not part of what we're talking about in our story. The Balaam account, so that you can go read the whole story, is found in Numbers 22 through 25. It's also found in Numbers 31:16, as well as Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23. The, that's all that we have on Balaam. In summary, Balaam was this uh, Gentile, was a Gentile prophet, a believer from the area of, same area of Mesopotamia where Abram had originated. And he was invited by Balak, the king of Moab, to come over and, for a price, curse the Jews. It is one of the early indications of anti-Semitism in the Old Testament. And he couldn't do it. Every time he tried to do it, God prevented him. First, first time he tried to go, God said, don't go at all. And he kind of pushed the Lord and said, well, why can't I go? And finally the Lord relented and said, okay, you can go, but you can't say anything unless I tell you to. And so in that process, he goes and he's, he's, uh, uh, his donkey refuses to cooperate as he goes along the path, and so he starts beating the donkey, and then the angel of the Lord is the one who's standing in front of the donkey. The donkey can see the angel of the Lord, but Balaam can't. And so the angel of the Lord then enables the donkey to speak, and the donkey says, why are you beating me? And see, this whole thing is to picture Israel as an innocent who is being, and Balaam is being asked to come and beat on the innocent Israel. And so God's trying to get his attention and say, look, just you, you, you're dealing unjustly with this poor creature that you have, and the same way you're going to go deal unjustly with Israel, and they're going to ask you to curse Israel. Well, after it was all over with, and after Balaam uh, tr- attempted three times to curse Israel, and he never did, he, he disappears, and that's, that's the context of Deuteronomy 22 through 24 are those three attempts of Balaam to curse Israel. But what we learn from what is said in Numbers 31.16 and Deuteronomy 23 is that he left and he came back and he became a personal advisor to the king of Moab. And he's out of fellowship. He's, he's, he's operating on a licentious principle. And though God prohibited him from cursing Israel, he comes back and he says to Moab, you know, I got an idea. You really want to destroy the Jews? I've got just the ticket. What you do is you get all the good-looking women in Moab out there and we'll uh, find someone and we'll open up a fertility shrine to the phallic cult and we'll have all these women function as cultic priestesses and as soon as those uh, Jewish men get a look at your good-looking Midianite women here, what they're going to do is they're going to come to the, the temple and they're going to forget all about God and the Ten Commandments, especially the First Commandment, and they are going to want to unite with the temple prostitutes of Baal of Peor. And this will completely destroy them. Look, those guys have been out in the wilderness for 40 years. It's been a long time since they've seen a lot of good-looking women. And you're going to destroy them internally through compromising their allegiance to God. And that's exactly what happened. And we have to go to the New Testament 
to pick up the accurate interpretation, just like I've pointed out several times when we've gone through Genesis, if you want to get a, the, the, a, a good understanding of the interpretation of the passage, you have to look at how the New Testament uses it. So we have three passages in the New Testament that talk about Balaam. One of them is our passage in Revelation 2.14. The other is in Jude 1.11. Woe to them, that is, these false teachers, in context, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So the writer of Jude, Jude writes, he ties these false teachers to Cain, to Balaam, and to the rebellion of Korah. Three different instances in the Old Testament. But here he refers to greed in terms of the error of Balaam. He sold out the Jews for what he could gain personally. Colossians 3.5 says that greed is tantamount to idolatry. Greed is tantamount to idolatry. And then in 2 Peter 2.15 and 16 we read, also talking about false teachers, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of of unrighteousness. So here we have the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam in Jude 11, the way of Balaam in 2 Peter 2:15, and the doctrine of Balaam in Revelation 2:14. And here he, the way of Balaam, is to love the wages of unrighteousness. He didn't love unrighteousness; he loved the benefits. Of unrighteousness. He loved the personal gain, whether it was personal pleasure or security, whatever it was. That's what the focus is in 2 Peter 2.15. His focus is on what he gets out of licentiousness. And then verse 16 talks about the fact that he was rebuked for his sin. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So you see, the New Testament affirms the historical veracity of this talking donkey. So that's just another thing for you to understand about the Old Testament, that if you're going to question that that happened and try to fit that into the realm of legend or that's just some sort of allegory, well, you have to deal with the New Testament that treats it as a literal historical event. Now, here we have a map of the land of Israel at the time of the conquest. And if you look down in this lower, uh, lower central area, we have Edom. And when the Jews came up from... The wilderness, they came up across Edom and they crossed over to the west and they came, they tried to go through Moab, but the king of Moab wouldn't let them come through. And they came up through the west. And this river right here, you can't really read the name of it, but this river here is the River Arnon. The River Arnon. And it is in this area north of there that you have there, uh, as they come up through the way of the desert, in the Transjordan, they come up against the uh, various uh, pagan kings that they have to uh, conquer. But they're not allowed to conquer the Moabites or the Ammonites because they are related to the Jews. They are related through the descendants of, of Lot. 
So let's look at this. First of all, we see that in, when we look at New Testament passages, the New Testament consistently condemns the action and advice of Balaam, but it treats Balaam as a believer. So this is an example of a carnal believer in the Old Testament. The actual error or teaching of Balaam is indicated in Numbers 31.16. In Numbers 31.16 we read, Look, these women, that is the Midianite women, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. So there it is seen that it is a result of the counsel of Balaam that this conspiracy developed. And it, if we were to take the time, we don't have the time to read through the whole chapter, but if you look at Numbers chapter 25, what you discover is that there was a daughter of the king, Zor, of Midian, and her name is Cosby. And she works with a leader of the uh, one of the Jewish tribes, of the, of the uh, tribe of Simeon, by the name of Zimri. And they put together this little conspiracy to erect this, this temple, which is nothing more than a uh, house of prostitution, this uh, temple to the phallic cult of fertility worship, and they're going to uh, populate it with a bunch of temple prostitutes. So the idea is that through sexual enticement, the Israelites were seduced into worshiping this false god, the Baal of Peor, which is one of the gods of the Canaanites. The licentiousness of their thinking resulted in their compromise of their wholehearted allegiance to God. What they have done by going to these to, to the uh, women of Midian is that they are assimilating human viewpoint into the divine viewpoint thinking that God wants Israel to have. That's going to set apart Israel as a unique nation. Now, the problem here isn't sex for sex sakes, because the sex is linked with this religious worship, this ritual worship. And it is viewed very seriously by God because the result of this assimilation, this unity with these cultic prostitutes will destroy the spiritual life of Israel. And the principle is that whenever we compromise with human viewpoint in whatever area, it sets the stage for destruction of our spiritual life. Because once we start rationalizing and justifying those compromises, then it makes it easier to do that the next time and easier after that. And before long, we've assimilated a number of very comfortable human viewpoint thought practices or overt behavior styles that work for us, but they are actually working against our spiritual growth. We see how serious God takes this kind of compromise with licentiousness. If you take a look at Numbers 25, you'll see what happens. First of all, when this rebellion takes place, 
and it's viewed as a rebellion, Moses is told to deal with it harshly. The first thing he's told to do is to round up all the leaders and to publicly hang them so that everybody gets the message. This isn't some nice little antiseptic execution off in a corner of some prison somewhere where nobody sees the actual death of the criminal. All of the leaders are to be publicly hanged. That's in 25, Numbers 25, verse 4. The second consequence is that the judges of Israel were to carry this out. Moses had organized the people under judges so that each group was, was basically overseen by these judges. And the judge of Israel wasn't like a judge, like a courtroom judge that you think of. He's kind of a combination of a courtroom judge and a military leader and an administrative bureaucrat. So the judges of Israel were to carry this out, and that's in 25, verse 5. However, one of the Israelite tribal leaders was named Zimri, the son of Salu, and he had gotten involved with a Midianite woman. And Phinehas, who is the son of Aaron, realizes the seriousness of the sin and what they are doing, and he chases them down, and he takes his spear, and he catches them in the tent together, and he skewers both of them. He just walks into the tent, and he just runs his spear right through both of them and into the wall. And that's in about 25, verse 7 and following. On top of that, God sent a plague that killed another 24,000 Jews who had gotten involved in the fertility cult. That seems pretty serious to most people. But God is demonstrating that you can't just come along and compromise and justify with sin in your midst without it ultimately destroying you. And that's what happens with licentiousness. And to demonstrate how seriously God took this, he gives a high commendation to uh, Phineas at the end of the chapter, and he enters into an eternal covenant of peace that we could call the Phinehasic covenant to in- indicate that one of his descendants would always serve in the high priesthood. Now, that is a phenomenal thing. God honors what Phineas did so greatly that he saw the seriousness of the situation. He took it in hand and he killed these two individuals, executed them, that God enters into a private, personal covenant, a promise with Phineas. Now, that tells you how seriously God takes sin, even in grace. Because he knows that because of sin, that's why he has to send his son to go to the cross. Furthermore, the consequences don't end in chapter 25. A few months later, we come to the events in chapter 31. In chapter 31, in chapter 25, we see the consequences to Israel where God has to punish Israel to get their attention. But that doesn't end it because they were only half of the equation. The other half are the Midianites. So in chapter 31, he tells Moses that they have to gather the troops and they're going to go to war against the Midianites. And in verse 7, they are to kill all the males and they go out and they kill all of the males. And then in verse 8, we're told that they killed the kings of Midian and it lists the rulers there and it also lists Balaam. So we see that Balaam had left and he comes back and he is an advisor to the uh, king. Uh, of kings of Midian. 
and he is killed by the Jews at this point. And then the Jews took all the women captive, but you see they're compromising again. They're taking all the women captive, and the order was to kill everybody. And so they took the women captive, and they came back, and Moses rebukes them, and then he tells them that they're to take all the children and kill all of the male children, and then of the women... They are to kill every woman who had had sexual relations. If they were a virgin, they would live. But if they were a non-virgin, they would not live. Now, that all seems pretty bizarre to our ears. And, of course, liberals just come, love to come along and distort the whole concept. But what God is demonstrating in events like this with Israel is the seriousness of sin and the consequences of it. And so Baal Peor is a lesson that Israel would never forget. But it established a pattern of sin that is repeated down through the ages, and that is the compromise with human viewpoint. And so when we come to Revelation 2:14, he says, You have those who hold the doctrine, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And a stumbling block is a scandalon. That's where we get our word scandal. The Greek is scandalon, and it means a trap or a snare laid with a tempting bait to entice an unwary animal. To entice an unwary animal. And the beautiful Moabite women, the Midianite women, were the bait in the trap of idolatry. Now I've gone back and forth between Midianite and Moabite because what you actually had was a was an alliance between the Midianites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and so they're all mixed up in this together to try to prevent what they perceive to be a land grab on the part of Israel as they're coming into the into the land that God has given them. So the trap was set, and the trap involves sexual immorality. So the stumbling block is assimilation into the idolatrous thinking of the phallic cult. Now, what's the, what, what's the modern-day counterpart for the phallic cult? The phallic cult was fertility worship. It's the idea that somehow we as human beings have to have some kind of interaction with certain gods and goddesses, and they'll make the land fertile. Remember, this is an agricultural society. So you're concerned about rain, you're concerned about the weather, you're concerned about crop production. And the idea was that if you somehow engaged in sexual activity, that this would somehow, when the, when the gods looked on, when the gods and goddesses looked on, they would get the idea of, oh yeah, we need to go out and do this same thing. You're encouraging them to procreate. And in the gods, in the mythology, the procreation of the gods and goddesses would produce fertility in nature. We just think of that as a bizarre concept. But what are they after? They're after prosperity. They're after success in their job and in their career. And they're trying to do things that somehow motivate and manipulate the gods to give them prosperity. Do we have anything like that going on today? Sure we do. Just drive up and down the freeways. You'll see these big billboards to a lot of these charismatic churches that all teach a health and wealth gospel. The prosperity gospel. That's all it is. It's a modern-day version of the ancient fertility cult. It is the idea that you can do something through your prayer life, through your spiritual life, through giving to God, through following certain procedures that they outline, naming it and claiming it, making a positive confession, planting that seed. When you start listening to some of these guys teach, they'll say, you just plant that seed. And it comes out, and that terminology comes out of a doctrine originated by 
by Oral Roberts and Kenneth Hagin back in the great latter-day rain revivals of the late 40s and 50s called the Seed Faith Doctrine. And this is one of the most pernicious heresies taught today, that if you give 10% to God, that's your seed faith. You plant that seed, and God's going to restore it to you a hundredfold. But it's just a modern version of this ancient perversion of the fertility cult, and you saw the same thing going on in Pergamum. It's, it's licentiousness. It's a total distortion of grace. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ makes such an issue out of this in the church at Pergamum, is that they are destroying the concept of grace. And that's what's ultimately involved in eating things sacrificed to idols and the sexual immortality, uh, sexual immorality that this was incorporated within those fertility rites of the idolatrous practices that were present there in Pergamum. And this same thing also characterized the Nicolaitans, this licentiousness that was going on. So the conclusion to this condemnation is that they had distorted and perverted the grace of God in order to justify these sinful actions where they were assimilating with the culture, the human viewpoint, pagan culture around them, in order to lessen the differences, in order to lessen the contrast between their biblical viewpoint teaching and the human viewpoint teaching of the pagan crowd. And we find that same pressure today, that we are constantly as believers pressured to somehow compromise with the world around us so we don't stand out, so we are not, don't come under the rejection of the cosmic system around us, so we don't have to deal with the pressures of the hostility of a pagan world that surrounds us in everything we do from business to family and everything else. Now next week we'll come back and we'll look at the challenge in verse 16 and then the reward the praise of verse 17 related to the overcomer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things this evening, to recognize the importance of grace and the subtle dangers of licentiousness that creeps into the thinking of every one of us, that somehow grace has covered it so we really don't have to take a hard stand against the sin in our own life. Father, we pray that we might have the courage to apply the things that we learned this evening. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of your sin. All that you need to do to be saved is to simply trust in what he did, to believe that Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man was qualified to die on the cross for your sins, that he paid the price in full. The instant you believe, the instant you put your trust in Christ alone, God the Father and his omniscience knows what you are believing, and at that instant you are justified. You receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you're declared just, and you are simultaneously regenerated, and you have an eternal life that can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Now, Father, we thank you for what we have learned from your word this evening, and we pray that we would uh, understand by the teaching of the Holy Spirit how to apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.